think also, though, Sarah, there's a real question about how the workplace culture is bad for diversity and who can yeah. work in the arts in the first place. Because we know the arts workforce is very poor at diversity, especially socioeconomic diversity. And we yeah. also see a lot of women leaving the workplace when they reach childbearing age. I think there's, uh, you know, I, I, I really do feel strongly that the kind of the workplace culture issues go hand in hand in, mm. with improving diversity in the sector too. Welcome to season two of Do Good and Do Well. My name is Sarah Fox and I'm a life and leadership coach and founder of the Do Good and Do Well community. And this is a podcast where we explore how to be a change maker without losing yourself. Let's get to it. Hi everyone and welcome to today's episode. I am really happy about interviewing Claire Antrobus today. Claire is a coach, trainer, facilitator. In fact, she trained me and got me on this path of coaching and her passion for it is so infectious and I've wanted to chat to her for ages about the work that she does and what she loves about coaching and also because she is so inspiring. She's an ultra keen runner. She is often doing challenges, running across, oh, running long distances across all kinds of places. And I'm really interested to find out whether that has impacted, influenced her own coaching approach. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. If you would like to support the podcast, please go to my coffee page. I will put a link in the show notes and you can buy me a coffee, which isn't actually a coffee. It's funds to help the podcast continue tap production and promotion. And I would really appreciate it. All right, see you in a bit. bit. Hello, Claire, and welcome to the Do Good and Do Well podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. How are you today? Good, thanks. Yeah, it's actually sunny up here, so it's not warm, but um, it's it's bright up in North Yorkshire. It's freezing here. I just showed Claire my beautiful giant fox slipper that's keeping my feet warm at the moment because it is so cold in Kent today. Claire, I'm really happy that you're here for a number of reasons. Firstly, because you are one of the people that trained me to be a coach and your passion for coaching and the way you think about it is really infectious and so just firstly a huge thank you for putting me on this (laughs) on this amazing path and also because the way that you talk about coaching not just coaching but your consultancy and your facilitation as well and and the way that you know it seems to me that it's all about people and about enabling them to really fulfill potential and live a life that they want to live is is just brilliant so my first question to you is what do you want people to know about you oh um 
it's funny because I'm usually the one asking the questions, <laughs> not answering them as a coach. So I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is I, I think, oh, well, I'm a mum. <laughs> I'm a runner. I'm, I call myself a mountain woman because I love the mountains. But as you say, professionally, I'm a coach and I also work as a trainer, a facilitator and a change consultant. So I, I say I help people learn to change. That's what I do at work. And I've done that for about 25 years now. I'm beginning to feel like a wise old lady with grey hair. <laughs> Woo! Yes! <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've been around, I've been around in the cultural sector, primarily arts organisations and museums for about 25 years. And these days I'm a mum of teenagers. But yeah, I think what you've said to me about what's important for me with this hindsight is about how I have shifted my thinking about work and life and so I started with what I do outside of work before I talked about what I do at work which I think is where my head's at with all this stuff now 25 years in yeah yeah well we'll we'll talk about that in a bit how did you get into coaching well I got into coaching by accident so I never intended to become a coach. I was on the Claw Leadership Programme about 12 years ago. And at that time, I was trying to get back into galleries and museums management, which I'd done at the start of my career, being a curator. And I was very interested in co-curation, co-production. And I talked to a number of people and said, what would be useful training to do if, if you're interested in this kind of stuff? And I was getting really into people like Nina Simon in the States, who was doing writing stuff about participation in museums. And they said, do coach training and facilitation training. That's the skill set you need as a leader. And so I did the RD First course that you did, Sarah, because I wanted to apply that to how I worked with people inside the organization in like a coaching culture way but also with the communities we worked with I really wanted to shift the power dynamic in museums so yeah I, I kind of got into it by accident because as you say I kind of fell in love with it <laughs> and once I'd done it I was like oh you know I say to people like that training is the best value training I ever did I use it every day of my life whether as a parent or in my consultancy but um yeah by accident <laughs> I did the RD first course because I wanted to know more about coaching. I'd been coached and I could see that I'd been using a kind of coaching approach over my whole career. I ask everyone this, what does do good and do well mean for you? I think it means a couple of things. Um, so I mean, everyone I work with is in the business of doing good, you know, do, doing work where you're trying to create some positive change in the world. But do well, I think, for me, I think there's two aspects to that. I think the first is about doing it well, like mm. um, professionally well. I suppose I ended up in management rather than the more artistic roles in arts organisations. And I've noticed that sometimes we, we don't focus so much on how we do things as much as what we do in the cultural sector and the wider non-profit sector. We kind of think like, the way we do it isn't perfect. It doesn't need to be perfect, but we kind of go, oh, we'll work really hard. We'll, it doesn't matter if we don't get it quite right because what we're doing is important. And I'm not sure I really subscribe to that. I think we need to work well as well as you know, the how of what we do things is as important as the what that we are doing. And I think that's where it kind of links to the other part, the well-being part of it, which is when you work in a sector where you love what you do, 
And it's that old adage, isn't there, about, you know, if you choose a job you love, you'll never work a day of your life. Well, that wasn't my experience. <laughs> it was when you, when you do a job you love, you'll have no boundaries. And people will work really, really hard. I had a job where I ended up sleeping on site because I worked such long hours, it wasn't worth driving home and coming back again. So I've made lots of mistakes about that, but I've come to learn that actually having boundaries and living with us, you know, working in a way that respects our life outside work is really important too. That's why I think those two things are linked because I think we often end up chasing our tail in the cultural sector because we're not doing the management side of things properly. Mm. It doesn't need to be as chaotic and all-consuming mm. as sometimes it is. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's this sort of, well, I guess, like a vicious circle, you know, you're, you're, you're giving it your all and then that has an impact on your mental health well-being or and, and your ability and I, I have just seen so many really exhausted people and that does have an impact on how we are working and how we have relationships with other people whether they're participants or colleagues and that real sense of I think people can start to feel very frustrated and resentful as well, which then impacts negatively on the work. And trying to break that cycle, circuit break it in some way, I think is really hard when we, it's such a familiar process for people, but also the bigger systems are built in a very particular way that it, it it's hard. It's hard to find the right place for yourself mm. within that so the doing well bit for you then in terms of the kind of the boundaries and about you know what's work and what isn't can you describe a really practical approach that you have to that like what do you do now that you didn't used to do as I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about it Sarah I think that's why I love coaching actually because I do think coaching enables you to do well both in that kind of that overworked sense I'm just thinking about the manager who doesn't know about coaching can't use those tools yet as one of the things they do and quite often they are overworked mm. and they'll be like I'm trying to do everything I'm trying to get people to work to my standard and they don't and they don't share my vision and it's about that shift towards a more inclusive way of working one that's focused on shared goals and performance and when, when you get it right, when you get that coaching culture, it's easier and you're not mm. that single point of failure in the system where you're overdoing things. I think practically, the, the practical example that pops to mind is about, that is about capacity, because I think most organisations and most people overstretch ourselves, and I'm certainly guilty of that, mm. <laughs> and try and do too much with the time you've got. Mm. So I think being really clear about your priorities and really clear about the capacity you have to do things and making decisions based on that. So at an organisational level, organisations do not know how much their work costs them. So, you, could, you know, you could get into this in an accounting level, just really understanding the cost of your work, the amount of time it takes to do it so you can make the right decisions as an organisation and also the impact that you're having. Mm. So, you know, really understanding the impact of your work as a nonprofit, the time it takes to produce it. And then cutting your cloth accordingly and making difficult choices about where you have your priorities. So things like doing a mission map with an organisation, 
and really kind of doing proper planning, strategic planning. And at a micro level, for me as a person, I, I apply those principles to the work I do. I try and work out what I can achieve, what I can do to a good standard and resource it accordingly. So, yeah, spreadsheets, it's not very sexy, but <laughs> that kind of level of planning and evaluation yeah. is, is, is the kind of the how that underpins it. Yeah. I guess the hard thing is that I feel like so often there's a real scarcity feeling which drives people to, and and I've been exactly the same, particularly in the last year of building my practice is this sense of, you know, wanting to say yes to everything because because a financial reason or because it's an opportunity to practice, to test, to try something out. But that feeling of, there's not enough, there's not enough money, there's not enough resources, there's not enough opportunities, there's not enough staff, there's not enough, it feels like they're all constantly this not enough feeling which then leads us to make these certain decisions and some of that, some of that can be based on fact but often that's based on the stories that we tell ourselves and experiences that we've had in the past that, that give us this information and I feel that we need to get better at what are the facts that we are dealing with? Where do we want to go? And how can we get there without people falling over and breaking in the process? What do you think? Yeah, I think the stories we tell ourselves have an important role to play in this. But I think it's multifaceted. So spreadsheets is part of the answer, but it's also about your values yeah. about your skill it's about all of those things together and I think that's when when I work with an organization on creating an organizational culture you've got to have all of those things in alignment so clear values clear strategy the right that number of staff in place there's all the different components together there's not just one solution to yeah. to getting it right but the mental models we carry around and the sort of the culture that we have, those assumptions. I think that's what we do as coaches, isn't it? Is we help yeah. people notice what are those assumptions they're carrying around and how could you reframe that mm. into something that's more powerful for you mm. and notice the assumptions that we're making that keep us locked into these unproductive patterns of, of doing things. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's um, it's being able to step back, isn't it? And as you say, notice and pay attention to and make decisions. So I'm I'm just going to change subject slightly because I really want to talk to you about your running <laughs> and about your just the challenges that you set yourself and why you set yourself those challenges and what that brings you and you know how that inspires your your work or does it or does it enable work anyway tell me <laughs> yeah well um yeah it's funny I, I don't know why I do it I enjoy it I think that's why I do it there's no more to it than that I mean practically I do it because I used to cycle a lot before I had the kids and I just didn't have the time to do the cycling anymore when I had the kids so I went back to running that's the kind of practical thing but it kind of fits it fills a, a role in my life around my social life, my recharging my battery, my kind of mental 
I think it's more a mental thing than a physical thing for me. It's how, you know, and I know that because when I'm injured, I get really down if I can't get out and about. Because for me, it's linked to getting out into the countryside, often with my friends, doing something a bit fun, a bit challenging. So, but I think, yeah, it has got to a stage where I do pretty much organise my life around doing crazy big running things. And that's what I put in the diary first each year is what crazy running thing am I going to do? And then how am I going to make my life work around that? Yeah. I think for the past few years, it's become about setting myself challenges and it's been really good for confidence to do that. So I did this crazy run from... And I, when I say run, I walk bits of this. I just want to be really clear. Um, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> you're not running the whole time because when it's really uphill, you, if you're running for like, you can't run for 12 hours a day. But I, I, I ran from one side of the country to the other in a week. Yeah. And I did it because I wanted to do that route. And I could only afford a week off work. So I had to kind of run it because uh, <laughs> I didn't have time to walk it. I love that it's logic. A, yeah, well, it's... I've done that before. I think the first time I ever did a proper fell run was I ran the Fairfield Horseshoe because I only had childcare for the morning and I wanted to do the Fairfield Horseshoe. So I had to run it rather than walk it. And there is a bit of that. I think sometimes I just want to do so much. I just run it because otherwise I couldn't fit it in. But it was it was just a massive confidence boost for me to do that because I did it largely apart from the very end where my friend came along. And my dad did do a bit of road sport in the car. I did it largely solo. And it was just a way of pushing myself um, at really outside my comfort zone mm. to, to do something solo. And it just gives me lots of confidence to do that kind of stuff. And I do learn a lot from it. I learn a lot about stuff that's useful as a coach. So I learn about stuff to do with motivation and accountability because the really ultra long stuff I do is more psychological than physical really is so you you know you have to really get into the sports psychology a lot of that's really relevant to coaching as well so it's got lots and lots of benefits but primarily it's because I like doing it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm sort of thinking I'm I'm slightly envious because I I really love the idea of it and I've been following Buff Wally and Dan By doing their theatre production this week running across Devon and you know even in the rain they have these massive grins on their faces and I just love that idea I also love the idea of running a marathon but I'd love the idea of the medal but I'm not sure I'd want all the training before <laughs> beforehand I love what you said about the it it's the first thing that goes in my diary you know I think perhaps we need to get better at putting the well-being stuff our stuff in the diary first whether that's on a weekly monthly yearly basis and then how do the other things fit around that and also the motivation the accountability you talked about sports psychology is there an example that you can give around that the the main thing is around motivation actually and I think that's I think it's really interesting around motivation because there's two types of motivation the intrinsic and the extrinsic and the extrinsic is the kind of the carrot and stick type of stuff and there are times when you need to dip into that for running the reward the I'm going to be really embarrassed if I said I'm going to do it and I don't do it and I you know I'm going to feel really cross with myself if I drop out at this point 
but we get the best out of ourselves when we're tapping into that intrinsic motivation, mm-hmm. that, that love of doing it uh, or doing it for a purpose. And so I think it's probably around the, the motivation and the tricks and tools around that and the habits that um, I've learned most from. So there's some great work I've come across on habits that I use with coaches that came from someone whose background was as a professional sports person. Mm. And then he got, he got looking into how habits are a key way, as well as goals, because I've used goals as a coach, but habits and discipline can be really helpful in, in creating change. Yeah. And so it's more the, the psychology of that side of stuff that I think it really translates. But as you say, like running, You'd love to do it. When I started, I didn't do it because I loved it and I used to hate it. And there are days when I go out, when I don't want to go out and everybody's the same where we feel like that. I I started running because I wanted to lose weight after having two pregnancies really close together and I wanted to get back into shape. And I didn't love it then. You know, it was only later that I got to loving it for different reasons. But yeah, it's really helped me get my head around motivation and accountability which are things which, whether you're creating organisational change, you know, that it can feel really hard. Yeah. And so how do we keep ourselves going? How do we get the best out of ourselves? That's what motivation's all about. It applies to how we help people learn. Yeah, I've just seen this with my son who got really disengaged with school recently. He's just done his GCSE choices and he's much more engaged now because we've really tapped into that around choice and and one of those kind of key things in intrinsic motivation is autonomy and choice and picking the things that you're good at it's an insight that running has given me that I apply across anywhere where I'm trying to help people achieve change or be the best that they can be Mm. yeah it's so fascinating I'm so interested in in that I I I've just been doing some kind of six-week exercise nutrition resetting. (laughs) What I realised at the beginning is that I'd stopped moving my body in a particular way because I was spending so much time, and here I am again, sitting in a chair looking at a screen. And so I was doing these exercises and just realised I hadn't moved my body in that particular way for, like, I'd just, I'd forgotten to pay attention to that stuff whilst doing lots of other things. And... it's sort of the end of our six weeks this week and I was doing a class and I I felt so much better and what I realized is is that it's that habit thing I'd got back into the habit of moving my body and it reminded me that it's little and often that kind of practice not giving up knowing the reason why I was doing that and keep attending the classes even though they are really hard (laughs) yes and it it gave me some reflection really on some of the things that I talked to my groups about my clients about in terms of habits and motivation that it, it it's not just about the work stuff we can apply this to what we want how we want to be in the world what we want to do 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 you have a when you're doing the long running or even are you the long running that's the technical term <laughs> do you have a coach who works with you on that or anyone who trains you um yes sort of so i've i had a running coach when i was a kid because i did used to run a lot as a kid but i have one now who i work on and off with 
and yeah it's really interesting doing that because we tend to think of sports coaching as really separate to kind of coaching you and I do but there's there's lots of similarities there's Mm -hmm. lots and lots of similarities and what I really liked with Kim Kim Cavill has been my running coach of late is the really practical nature because I think sometimes in coaching we we kind of focus on the mental the psychological aspects of it but with the running coach it's really practical as well and the she gives you a plan and you follow the plan and it's really nitty-gritty and that kind of attention to to the detail and perhaps it comes back to some habits as well but the small steps that get you to where you need to get Mm -hmm. that real attention to detail and the practical is a big part of coaching too one of the things that I've been really thinking about recently is about the importance of what we in terms of our body and what we put into our body and how that impacts our energy levels which then enables us to do those things that we do in sleep having enough sleep I think that's really true because I think that's one of the other things I've learned from running because I'm quite a in my head person like Mm. I'm much more of a thinker than a feeler and as I say I do like a good spreadsheet so for me doing the running stuff really puts you in touch with your body Mm. and I think that's definitely something which I've had to learn to do more of when I'm thinking about the rest of my life but you know you you need to look after your body to do this kind of stuff Mm. and you you notice, especially I do yoga to, to help with my running as well. You know, if I've had a really stressful work week, it shows up in my body when I try yeah. and do yoga. I can't balance as well as normal. It's really interesting. Or if I've had a really heavy running week, I'm really stiff and my hips are not opening like they normally do in yoga. So the, you're getting this feedback from your body. And mm-hmm. I remember writing a blog post actually about ultra running psychology and lockdown. Because one of the great tips about when you're an ultra runner is you've got to eat properly and rest properly and really look after your body. And they reckon that one of the interesting things about ultra running is that women sometimes beat men in ultra running at the elite level. So a few years ago, you might have noticed there was a woman called Jasmine Paris who won outright the the winter spine race. It's the the they raced the Pennine Way in one fell swoop, two hundred and sixty eight oh. miles, and she beat all the men. And she was actually breastfeeding at the time. It was just like amazing. And and this kind of stuff happens in ultra running. Women women outright aren't quite as good as men, like statistically. But mm. the difference between men and women at ultra distances is less. And they think it's because of the psychological advantages and that women look after their bodies more and are less likely to push through pain. So that whole thing about listening to your body mm. and fueling properly, getting the right rest. I mean, that's something I've learned the hard way in my working life. I, when I was younger, I just used to have the stamina to work, 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 work. And now I know... I've had to learn how to get the best out of my energy levels. And it's the same when you're running. You have to be more in tune and and take a more holistic approach to getting things done, really. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've been researching menstrual cycles and how that impacts work. I did a really good course recently which was about really being able to identify where you are in your cycle and managing your work around it. So it's that kind of, you st- that's your starting point. 
and you know, they talk about it in different seasons so your winter is when you're bleeding and then spring is where you start to kind of grow again and get these ideas summer's where you say yes to everything and you think you're invincible and then autumn is part of the cycle where you're shedding and needing to kind of go under a little bit and they talk about that's the point where the inner critic is at its loudest I guess but actually that you can harness that power I love the way they talked about this in terms of you can really grow your power at this point and say no very firmly and and keep your boundaries and then you go into winter and the whole thing starts again and it's about where you put rest within that monthly cycle so that in your spring summer you can do the work you've got the energy to do that and I keep thinking about how we can apply that to the balance between our working life our personal life how we can as I say start with that rather than it all sort of fitting (laughs) in between so I've started to look at my diary and not book in anything in a particular week because I know that's the point I just want to hide under my duvet and (laughs) look after myself yeah and that that's making me think about the other kind of you know when I introduced myself the other thing I said was I'm a (laughs) mum and the other thing that I think is that if I you know if I I was joking a bit when I said I organized my working life around running I organize it around my family first and foremost and that's why I went freelance when I did was because I didn't think I could be a parent and carry on with the kind of working patterns that I had had so being freelance gave me a lot more control but yeah I mean for while the kids were little I mean they're now at secondary so it's slightly less of an issue practically but my entire working life was based around when they were in school and when they were not at school and I still work primarily term time only but for me that whole you know we're talking about the stories we tell each other ourselves about work the story I told myself for most of my career was I couldn't have a leadership role in a gallery and be a parent and just because the work culture I found myself in I didn't think those two things were very compatible and I didn't see role models around me doing that. Mm. I trained as a coach about the same time as I became a parent. And I think those two experiences are the most important ones in my professional life because how I work has completely transformed since training as a coach, but also becoming a parent has completely transformed me as a person and how Mm. I work. And I feel like there's a richness to who I've become as a human being because of being a parent, which, which brings, you know, I think I am a better leader because of being a parent. And yet I found myself in a situation where it felt really hard to be a parent and working at the same time. Mm. So this kind of, this more holistic approach to, to our lives, I think is, a, you know, if we don't, in, if we don't embrace these, other parts of our life beyond work then we're not developing as whole human beings Mm. yeah yeah I think that's really that's really important one of the reasons I did the coaching course was because I had and and I was working for an organization that was you know really family friendly and it was all about the whole person it's about kindness and care and compassion for each other you know these are things we talked about yet there was still that going from work to mum work mum work like and and the, and it flipped so 
quickly that I at, at one point just thought I can't I can't do this anymore and I'd given too much to to work and so I left and then that's when I did the coaching qualification I, I mean I think one of the things we should say as well is that in many ways it's a privilege to be able to to talk about this stuff and think that we could create a work and life or create a life that looks the way we want it to look because not everybody necessarily has the opportunity to do that and I was able to leave that job and do that coaching qualification because I had a partner who had a salary that was coming in I have a particular privilege that that allows that allows me to do this personal development work and and I'm interested as well as that how could this community the work that I'm doing somehow impact other people who might not necessarily have that privilege yeah I think also though Sarah there's a real question about how the workplace culture is bad for diversity and who can work in the arts in the first place because we know the arts workforce is very poor at diversity especially socioeconomic diversity and we also see a lot of women leaving the workplace when they reach childbearing age I think there's uh, you know I I really do feel strongly that the kind of the workplace culture issues go hand in hand in Mm. with improving diversity in the sector too I think these things are very interlinked and if we if we look at other parts of the economy we don't have these problems with diversity that we do in the arts sector in the same way if we look at the commercial sector and some parts of the creative industries it's very very different so I don't see this as a luxury conversation I see this as one that's at the heart of why we have the issues that we do in in our sector really Mm. around diversity in particular I think what you said a little bit earlier about role models, not seeing anyone who was doing this, that I, I, I kept thinking, I want, really want a mentor who has small children and who's in a leadership role and in participatory arts. And it was, yeah, and who comes from a working class background and could understand and there weren't, <laughs> I didn't find anyone. I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were somewhere, but I didn't yeah, find them. I saw, I, I kind of came across one woman who was doing the kind of job I wanted to do, who had children back, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s. So my very first job, full-time job, was maternity cover for someone who then came back to work and I was her assistant and I shared an office with her for the next two years and saw her really struggle with working full-time and trying to be a curator at the same time. And I just kind of took away from that oh my God, these two things are not compatible. So I spent the next 10 years scanning to see who was doing it. And there was, I found one person. (laughs) And there are more people doing it now. But then, you know, coming back to being a coach, I reckon like 75% of people I coach, one of their goals is around life-work balance. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who is in an employed job. It's such a, and that's whether that's children or elderly relatives or... Or it's their health, you know, it's about the quality of their life. And time and time again, I see people whose life quality is impacted by the way in which we're working. And it doesn't feel like we should be there. 
I'm a big fan of the Happy Manifesto. Don't know if you know Henry Stewart, who runs Happy. Mm. And he's one of his, I was using it in my training courses now about managing people. One of, one of his uh, 10 commandments is love work, but get a life. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, that's a commercial sector company. I do believe we are more productive. We perform better when we've got a full life outside mm. of work. It's mm. not about not being committed to work. I think we tell ourselves that kind of story in the arts that if you're committed, work is everything. I'm really committed to my job, but I know to do a good job, to do the best job, I, I also want to have a life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And coaching is a really good example. You're holding a space for someone and, and that can have that that comes with an emotional load. And I know that I need to do certain things that that, give me something else nourish me in another way so that then I can come back and do it again and when I did the 100 days over no what did I do 100 people over 100 days last year you know that was that was intense that period of time and I was not always good at this but I did have to learn very quickly how to decompress in some way so that then I could come back and do it again. Yeah, I think I think it is. I mean, that's why in these kind of helping professions, there's often this tradition of supervision, isn't there? One of the functions of supervision is about your own well-being and yeah. making sure you're okay. And I'm, you know, I'm struck as I say that I'm thinking about this last year, because I, I know this last year, holding space for other people has felt quite draining at times yeah. because of the challenges other people have had. And then I think I compare that with, say, my brother. My brother's a consultant anaesthetist. And the year he's had, he's basically yeah. been putting people on ventilators for COVID. He's just dealt with COVID for the last 15, 16 months. And when you know the kind of crisis of mental health that's happening in the NHS because of the work they're doing and the hours they are working... And he talks to me about being really worried about the workforce. They've got so many people off with sickness, mental health sickness. They've got real issues recruiting and retaining people because they're not able to work in a way where they're looking after yeah. themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really, really important looking after yourself. And this whole culture of long hours and this whole culture of being really, really busy I sometimes think I really like the simple coaching tools we have around that. I gave someone once the technique around reframing, like, I don't have the time. Well, yeah. let's rephrase that language with responsibility. I choose not to prioritize mm. is what we're saying when we say I don't have the time. <laughs> and I remember someone giving me some feedback saying that had completely shifted how she was handling things because she found herself kept saying to her kids, I don't have the time to do this with you. I don't have the time. And I challenged her to say, I am not prioritizing this. I am prioritizing that. And she made some different decisions when she did that. Yeah. It is those simple shifts, it, it, you know, even from saying I need to, to I want to, I, I need to exercise. I want to exercise. It is just such a different dynamic. I've been talking to someone on my group program recently. And one of the questions that I ask very early on is who do you want to be? not what do you want to do who do you want to be and she said that just that question has shifted 
something has shifted for her in thinking about what she's choosing to do, what she's choosing to prioritise so that she can be who she wants to be. Yeah, and I think it can be really powerful, but I do think there's, um, you know, it comes back to this, the stories that we have, the kind of the, the themes that we have. One I heard a lot of when I did my Claw Fellowship was, if you want to be successful, you're going to make a sacrifice. If you want to have a really big career, then there'll be a sacrifice on your personal life or, or whatever. And I really challenged that narrative. I didn't like that. Mm. And I think I heard you say, Sarah, in one of the recent podcasts about if you want to do good work, that you're not going to ever make a decent living. Yeah. And I think sometimes being really assertive about what we want can be really powerful. And I coach so many people who find it hard to be assertive about wanting to earn enough money to live on. Yeah. And I find that sad. And I and I try and encourage people to be honest about what they need financially and not to be ashamed of wanting to not be scrabbling around and not able to pay their mortgage. Just because you're doing something you love doesn't mean that you that money's somehow a dirty word. Yeah. Um, so, but but I do think a lot of people carry that yeah. that with them, um, and you know it comes back to you can because so many people want to work in in the arts or in charities. We can get away with really poor conditions, but I do think that is not a wise way to work mm. in in the long term. Mm. yeah well you know I totally agree with that there is so much shame around money and it's been interesting going into the online coaching world in the last year and just hearing actually a lot of women some of you know I don't always agree with everything they say but they're asserting that they want to earn money that yes pays their bills but also so that they can have a life and and choose to do things that they really want to do and that felt really empowering hearing other people say that because I'd spent 20 years in the not-for-profit sector counting every penny and thinking about how you do everything for as cheap as possible and including labor and how we pay our freelancers and yeah it's um I've been thinking about that a huge amount and that I think this whole and I've said this a few times on on this podcast I think the whole sector is built on the goodwill and the gratitude of people who are so thrilled to be working in the arts and who feel shame around asking for more asking for that pay rise asking for a, a decent day rate people who feel shame around saying oh I've got to leave at 3 30 to pick the kids up from school you know it's that I, I see so many younger women, and it is mainly women. I know that men have parental responsibility too, but you know the childcare tends to fall more to women, wrongly, and negotiating their boundaries around working hours, particularly given the pandemic and the homeschooling people had to do. That feeling apologetic about having caring responsibilities. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I hope that's something we can we can try and shift the dial on as well. When I first went freelance, I used to hide the fact I had children because I thought people would think I was unreliable and <laughs> things like that and you couldn't get the job done and, and that my life would be chaotic. But that's just where I was because that's kind of what I had absorbed around yeah. me. 
we are coming to the end how can people find out more about you and all the brilliant things you do and also if you've got anything particular coming up that you want to share I've recently just redone my website so I have got lots of free resources on there for people who want to either individually or with teams create change and the best way to get hold of that is either go and look at my website or to sign up to my mailing list so I do a monthly themed newsletter around creating change and I also put that out on Twitter so I'm on Twitter a fair bit and usually putting pictures up of nice places I've been and runs I've been on as well as work things and I'm just launching for the autumn some new action learning sets because action learning is something I've been involved in forever and I totally love and I'm gonna run some new ones in the autumn so have a look at those fab and uh, yeah I would really recommend signing up to Claire's newsletter I get it and have used the resources it's so brilliant and I love action learning too (laughs) we didn't talk about action learning um but yeah definitely follow Claire because she's awesome and brilliant thank you so much It was just lovely talking to you. And yeah, I will see you soon. Thanks, Claire. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Do Good and Do Well podcast. I'm Sarah Fox and if you've enjoyed this please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review it really does help. You can find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook and you are welcome to join my Facebook group called Do Good and Do Well which is a place of support and inspiration for change makers. I help people to do good in the world without losing themselves in the process by focusing on and understanding the way they feel about themselves, the way they look after themselves and the contribution they want to make in the world. If you would like me to help you focus on doing good and doing well, please book a free 20 minute call. And if you haven't already, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter too. All the links are in the show notes. But most of all, take very good care.